0: You are catching us on a really fun Sunday. Um, About a year ago, actually a year ago next Sunday, we launched into this series to tackle the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, uh, line by line, word by word, unpacking its sort of depth. And we are actually bringing that journey to a relative close, because we're going to finish the book today, but for the next two weeks, we're going to kind of unpack bigger lessons learned from the book of Hebrews. So, But we're going to bring the actual letter to a close today. So 39 individual sermons or messages later, here we've wound ourselves up in about a year to land on the last little section of text. And so just by way of a really brief recap this morning, the book of Hebrews is really written to this group of kind of pushed out Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians that have basically made a profession of faith to believe in Jesus and they are being ostracized by their family and by their culture. Their families and culture are saying, you can't just believe in Jesus. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you still have to do the full kind of regime of keeping the Jewish religious law or you need to reject Jesus completely and return to Judaism. And there's a lot of pressure And they are facing that, and they're facing arguments from culture and from their families saying, Jesus is not the best way. He's not even the only way. In fact, he's not the way at all. You need to return to your old way of life. And so the majority of the book, uh, really, as as we talk about and we'll talk about today, it's it's a sermon that's preached and a letter that's circulated, all kind of rolled into one. But a sermon that's preached, is our author, our preacher is basically giving this compelling argument saying, Jesus is better. The entire book is geared around the idea of being Jesus better than the law, better than Moses, better than the high priest, better than the angels. Like Jesus holds all things together. And so if you were to pin me down, I would tell you that the book of Hebrews really is about two things. about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Deficiency, sufficiency meaning he is all that we need. There is nothing else that we need in life other than Jesus. He is completely and totally sufficient for our life and for salvation. There is nothing else that we need. We don't need to add anything else to that. The Judaizers were trying to get Jewish Christians to add back into their life the ritual way of living, food laws and and all kinds of covenant laws saying, yeah, you can follow this Jesus, but you're not going to be truly saved or God's people unless you do these other things. But what we learn and know through Scripture is that it's never Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus is totally sufficient. We also learn in this book that Jesus is supreme. So the supremacy of Christ, meaning that he is absolutely in control of all things, that all things hold together because of him. That Jesus is the supreme authority for our life, and therefore he gets Our worship and our attention and our hearts. And the entire book is kind of written this way. And we have gone through some deep theological dives. It has taken us back into Old Testament covenantal system. We've explored Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Genesis and all kinds of things as we walk these paths. We've dived into some deep theological holes. And we've skimmed the surface of just good Christian living. Marriage, money, things that just matter to the Lord. And we've done all those things in this past 39 weeks. And we're going to bring it all to a close. And for a lot of us, when we look at biblical letters or biblical books, we see those those greetings and those closings and we kind of think, those are kind of throwaways, like, I, Paul, say this, or so-and-so sends his greeting, or tell your mom I said hi, or whatever. You know, they're all in there. And, and we skip those little pieces to get to what's really sandwiched in between. <clears throat> but if we truly believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's the very breath of God, is the theopneustos, that every word is profitable, and therefore those greetings actually matter. They're actually really important, and they're deep. And we're going to be looking at the closing today and some last-minute thoughts that our author gives this gathered group of people and then uh, some thoughts as he closes them out. He's going to ask us to do two things. He's going to ask us to believe in some things and he's going to ask us to bear with this letter and he's gonna explain why. So if we kind of set our hearts up for that, and you have your Bible, you can open up to Hebrews 13. If not, there's one right around there. We're gonna be in the last section, Hebrews 13, 20 through 25, as we get introduced to the idea, a reminder really about some things we need to believe, some promises that God's makes, and some things that we're going to need to bear as we wrestle with and move through and study and understand scripture. And actually what we're gonna see is this begins, this is not the end of Hebrews, but the beginning of what our author is pushing us towards. So let's take a moment, let's pray as you flip over to Hebrews 13, and then we will motor through this as quick as we can this morning because I know it's been a busy morning already. But let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for, again, just for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank you for the families that are represented, for the generations that are represented here, that we have, in some cases, three and four generations of of families here today. We have uh, children and parents and grandparents and perhaps great-grandparents, Lord, and it is a beautiful picture. You are a community God. Everything in your redemptive story is about community, Lord. You call us into community, into family together. In fact, in Hebrews 13, we we're at the very beginning, in in verse 1 through 3, we are reminded to love like family. And that's not always easy. It's sticky and it's hard and it's difficult at times because family's a mess, but it's beautiful. And we're called to live and love in it. And so having family here today to celebrate moments like our children's dedication is such a supremely important piece. And so Lord, I pray that we won't take that lightly. And so Lord, as we look at this letter, I pray too that as we sit here this morning that we wouldn't just be a throwaway of saying, hey, I was here to watch my kid or my grandkid get dedicated or whatever, but I'm also here to hear God's word and just To teach my heart. And what we do each week is we just ask you to take a moment and ask the Lord to teach you. Just take a moment in your own own heart right where you sit. Um, Nothing weird. You don't have to say anything out loud. And just ask the Lord in your heart to teach you. Just whisper that in your heart. Lord, teach me something this morning that you want me to hear. Open your word to my heart. Like whatever it is that you need to just sort of ask the Lord to do. Just take a moment in your heart as we sit here and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. We also deeply believe that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. We want you to pray for the people around you. We want you to be moved by their spiritual growth. We want you to, to long that they would come to know Christ more. And so we take a moment each week and we just pray for the people around us, even if you don't know their names. We just ask, you know, Lord, I pray for this person sitting in front of me or the guy in the red shirt or the whatever, just that you would move in them. Or maybe it's your wife or your daughter. Um, just pray over them. Pray that God would move in them, that he would stir their hearts this morning. Take a moment and just pray for the people around you. Lord, we turn our time over to you 100%. We ask you to teach us through your word, Lord. We can't unpack it and discover you. You are the revealer of truth. And so, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit just to teach us this morning, um, to remind us of some powerful things to believe in, And some truths about scripture and some promises of who you are and what you will do. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So 39 weeks later, we've arrived at the time where our author, our preacher, he's wrapping it up. He is sewing it up together. And a lot of people believe, and I'll get to this in a moment, that it was a a sermon that was preached and then written down and then circulated amongst all these house churches to be read, to be shared, to be contemplated, to be poured over. And we're bringing this thing to a close. And if you were to sit down and read Hebrews start to finish, it would take you about an hour. If you were to hear it preached, it would probably take you about that long. But We've gone over it quite a bit, and you'll hear a little bit more in that moment. It's been kind of a lengthy dive. But we've come to that place where he's bringing it all to a close, and he's saying, okay, so as I'm getting ready to wrap this up or send you on your way, I want you to remember a few things. In fact, I want you to believe a few things. Because remember, this group of Hebrew Christians is really wrestling with what this faith in Christ looks like. It's very costly to them. They're losing family. They're lost their place in culture. A lot of them are being persecuted. That is a terrible thing to be a Hebrew believer. Um, You are cut off. And so he's saying, I want you to remember that there are a few things that you have got to believe that God is going to do in you and then the things that I need you to bear with, right? So this idea of believing, this idea of bearing. And so we're gonna unpack it and look at them this morning. But this is the last section of the book of Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. May the God of peace, who through the blood of our eternal covenant brought back from the dead, the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd the great shepherd of sheep, equip you with every good thing to do his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Uh, If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all of God's people. And those from Italy send their greetings as well. Grace be with you all. So all of that to bring us to this place where he begins to, this arc of closing is now coming in and he is landing this plane. He is closing his sermon. He is finishing out this letter. And he writes in verse 20 three really important things that I think he wants us to know and hang on to. Three things that we're called to believe. That we're called to believe in the peace of God, that that God is a God of peace. That we're called to believe in the power of God and we're called to believe in the providence of God. And they're laid out right there for us in verse 20. May the God of peace, right, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of sheep. So he lays these three things out. May the God of peace is what he starts this close with, as a reminder that God is actually a God of peace, which is important. Because if you read, as we've done through the Old Testament, we've brought these things into Hebrews, it's hard to understand God as a God of peace at times. God is a God of armies, He is a God of hosts. In fact, our author's theology is very similar to Paul's theology. In fact, it's almost identical. Right? And that's why we sometimes think that these the author of Hebrews was probably Apollos or someone like that that was really tight with Paul. They have a totally different literary style, but identical theology. And talks a lot about the peace of God. But he also talks about who we were before Christ. And Paul in in Romans 5 and in Colossians 1 tells us that we were enemies of God. We were alienated because of our evil behavior. That pre-Christ, pre-relationship with Jesus, we are absolutely and totally at war with God. And our author, Hebrews, echoes that truth. All through the book, he reminds us of who we are in the presence of holy, mighty, majestic God. But he says God is a God of peace. And what's fascinating about that is that if we are enemies of God, then we should be at full war with God. And that is a war that you will absolutely and totally lose. God is a God of majesty and might, but he is also a God of holy wrath. And we are fully and deeply sinful. And we are therefore God's enemies because of the sin in us. And we deserve the God of armies, the God of hosts, to ride out in the battlefield and annihilate us because of our sin. And that sounds really crummy, because it is. Like, that's terrible. But that's what sin deserves. But our author says, however, here's what I want you to know. May the God Of peace. Because here's the incredible thing about Jesus, and what we've learned from the book of Hebrews, of course, and all of Scripture, is that Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus brings and makes peace between us and God, He brings our lives back to harmony with the Lord something you cannot do. God does for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, in Christ, God is a God of total and absolute peace. Now, a lot of us spend our days trying to prove to God or trying to win God's peace. We try and perform to make sure we do enough religious activities or enough things to make sure God knows that we are working to earn his peace. And this is a broken idea, and it's really bad theologically. Because we don't do the things we do in our Christian life. We don't live the way that we live in our Christian life to earn God's peace. No, we live the way that we live and we do what we do because God has already given us peace in Christ. And there's a dramatic and important difference. No matter what you do, you will never earn peace with God. You will never perform your way into peace with God. God will never look down and say, you know what, Trev is really trying. He's really working hard. You know what, we're gonna be okay with this guy. He's good. That's not how any of that works. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, sent his son to die, raised him from the dead, that if I put my faith in him, God says that because of Jesus, I no longer see Treb in his deeply troubling, sinful heart. But I see the blood of my son, and therefore we are at peace. I am no longer enemies of his. And Treb did nothing, nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it, nothing to work towards it. And this is one of the most comforting and most beautiful things in all of Scripture, is that no matter what you do, you are at peace with God already when you surrender your life to Christ. It's not just about salvation. We oftentimes think that the whole idea about giving our life to Jesus is that someday we may stand in heaven in this glorious eternal thing. But the truth is, eternal life begins today. That the peace that we have with God is right now in this very breath. Eternal life doesn't begin the day we die. It begins the day that we surrender our life to Christ. It moves now. Therefore, I am at peace. I no longer have to fight the morality inside of me to try and make God pleased with me. It's a really foreign concept because we do this with all the people in our lives, right? We perform for our spouses all the time. We try and show them to do things, to make them believe that we love them and that we're good or that we care. And then we wait for them to say thank you or you're forgiven or whatever. It doesn't work that way with the Lord. God has already done all that we will ever need in Christ. Therefore, when you surrender your life to him, you are at peace with God. Period. It is not something that we earn or work for. And and the first thing he's reminding us of this, to believe, is this. Believe that God is a God of peace. If you're at war, you're at war with yourself if you've given your life to Christ. God has already calmed those waters, right? So he says, believe that God is a God of peace. Believe in the peace of God. He says, believe in the power of God, right? The next part of verse 20 says that God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, Brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. He's talking directly about the power of the resurrection. That God is so powerful, right? That his son Jesus died and that God conquered death, literally raised Jesus from the dead. And the most incredible, magnificent miracle in all of human history, right? God raises Jesus from the dead. He demonstrates his power. In the resurrection. But what's incredible and we're going to see in a moment is that that power is also in you to equip you to do God's will. Meaning that the power of the resurrection is fully alive in you as a follower of Christ. God's power lives and dwells in you. And he is going to use that to equip you to do what he calls you to do. A lot of times we think that God is a God whose power was used in once and then God just waits and sits and watches But what we'll see here in a moment is that God is fully moving and fully active. And that most literally he is working his power in you. The idea of sanctification is the idea of becoming more like Jesus. It is actually God's power and his move at work in you all the time. As we grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus, God is at work. We don't mature in our faith on our own. God moves us and draws us. That his power is very much alive. That God through no work of ours, right, has saved and redeemed you. And he demonstrates that power through the resurrection of Jesus and the ongoing movement of your life. He raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know how many times that our author mentions the resurrection explicitly in the book of Hebrews? 50, 100? Nope. Once. Right here. It's like a preacher waiting and saving that last little glorious nugget for the very end. This is the first time he explicitly says that God, the power of the resurrection has raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Now to a group of Hebrew believers, this is an incredible thing. For us, we take for granted this stuff all the time because we've been raised in it or we have Easter celebrations. But for first century believers, everything hinged on the reality of the resurrection If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, all this that we're even doing today is garbage. It's a waste. It's a lie. And Paul would say it's in vain. Everything hinges on the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. And for the first century believer, they they hung everything they were on that singular truth. Not on Jesus as a traveling rabbi or a man that had great speeches. But on the reality that Jesus was crucified and people saw it with their own eyes. And then he was alive and they saw that too. That is the power of God at work. And a lot of us have thought, man, that power may be for somebody else or I haven't seen it, but he's reminding us to believe that the God that raised the dead still does miraculous, amazing things. And one of those is moving and equipping you. The fact that you come to know Christ at all is evidence of God's incredible, miraculous, moving power. So believe in the peace of God and believe in the power of God. And then he wraps that little verse up with this one little great, amazing statement in which we're called to believe in the providence of God, right? So listen to verse 20 again. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Think about that for a moment in light of the book of Hebrews. So what I was ready for when I was reading through these verses for him to say, and God brought back Jesus from the dead, right? The, and I was waiting for him to go, the one that's better than Moses or the great high priest. But no, right here for the first time ever in all of Hebrews, he mentions and calls Jesus the great shepherd of sheep. In other words, that Jesus is always acting and always moving and guiding and directing and leading his people. The idea of God's providence is this, is that God is continually and always working, right? In the lives of, Of all created things for his glory. That is the definition of the providence of God. That God is always and constantly at work in all created things for his purpose and his glory. What that means is that God didn't just create the earth, spin it into motion, and then sit back and say, let's see how it unfolds. God is fully and continually at work. And this is evidence in the idea that God is constantly referred to as a shepherd. He is the shepherd of sheep. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd is active. If a shepherd sits back and watches his flock literally and does nothing, a shepherd is not doing the job of a shepherd. A shepherd protects his sheep. He leads his sheep. Our, our audience would have known this immensely. In fact, Jesus in John 10.10 10 says, I am the shepherd of the sheep, which would have immediately reminded them of Psalm 23, right? Where God says, I am the shepherd. I will lead you by still waters. Even though we walk in the valley, the shadow of death, a shepherd leads those sheep protects them thy rod and thy staff they comfort me right a shepherd is active he is moving he is leading so he's telling this group of people like remember God is a God that you are at peace with because of Christ you are not at war with God what you deserve you did not get and that power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and moving in you and growing in you and God has not just left you you don't have to be afraid God is your shepherd, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will protect you. And if you are sitting here this morning wondering where God is, he hasn't moved, he is still moving. He is leading, he is directing, he is correcting. God is an active and vigilant shepherd that cares for his church. In fact, their author says that Jesus is the great shepherd of sheep. Now for a group of, of first century believers that were afraid, whose culture and family had turned on them, who at every corner were thinking, man, life is, is really difficult. To hear that, that Jesus, the great shepherd, is leading them and guiding them is a comforting, beautiful, beautiful thought. Right? Now we are in a culture where we do everything on our own. We're actually called to do that. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We live this American dream where we gotta fight for ourselves. And I think it does us a deep disservice at times in our spiritual lives. Because we oftentimes forget that we are literally just called to die to ourself and to surrender wholly to Christ and let him be the shepherd that he is, to lead, to guide, to protect. So our author starts in verse 20 by saying, listen, as we wrap all this up, remember, believe these things. That God is a God of peace, right? Believe in the power, the peace, and the providence of God. Like these things are very real. No matter what comes next, these things never change. And they're very timely words. But he asks us another question or kind of presents us, which is why are these things so important? Why do we need to, to bank on them and hold on to them? Like what's coming? And he addresses that in verse 21. Look, look at what he says in verse 21. So may this God of peace who through the blood of our eternal covenant brought back Jesus from the dead, who is that great shepherd of the sheep. May that God equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. So he tells us two distinct things. There's two reasons why you need to believe this. You need to understand this. You need to know this. Because God first is going to equip you, and second, God is going to be with you. So he's saying, God is going to equip you. And this is important because they're living this Christian life out in a place that is very hostile. Most of us will never experience that. At most, we'll be inconvenienced by our faith, if that. But to hear that the God of peace and the God of power and the God of providence is going to equip them and going to be with them is an incredibly comforting thing. He said, God will equip you, right? Right? He will equip you to do his will. Now this is important, right? Because if we just take these verses out of context and we read them and we say, God will equip me to do what? To be a dad, to work at your job, to be a good husband, to be a good mother, to be a good wife, to be a good employee. God will, yes, all of those things. But even more than that, God will equip you to do what? To do his will. Right? God will equip you to do his will. In other words, what God is going to do is he's going to give you all the tools that you need to do what he's calling you to do. That God has not set your life of following Christ in motion and then said, go and do it. It's not like he pulled up to a job site, dumped out all the tools and materials, and said, build a house. I'll be back in a week. No, he we said, God is going to equip you with all that you need. And as we're going to see, he will also work in you that God will equip you to do his will. Now, a lot of times we want God to equip us to do our will. God, I need you to equip me to be able to do this, to be successful, to have this, to fill these voids in my life. But as we're going to see in this little verse here, everything in in the life of a believer that follows Christ is about Jesus. It's about dying to ourselves and saying, not what I want, Lord, don't equip me to do what I want. Don't equip me to build the life that I want. Don't equip me to build the dreams that I want. But, Lord, equip me to do what is your will. And what is your will? I will follow you. He will give us what we need to do what he calls us to do. He kind of tacks on to that same idea, right? Right? And he will work in you or in us to do what is pleasing to him. Same concept, right? God will work in us to do what? Whatever we want? No, to do what is pleasing to him. Now, if we look at this as a prosperity gospel kind of thing, God will equip me and God will work in me to do what I want, to bring about my pleasure, to get my things in life. Bankrupt. It's not what scripture says says that God will equip you to do his will and he will work in you to do what's pleasing to him. In other words, everything in our life as followers of Christ is about Jesus. It's about his will and doing what pleases and honors God, not what pleases and honors you. But all of our culture, even spiritually, is bent the other way. It's bent to saying, what is in this for me? It's our entire Western church model, right? We walk into churches and we say, what do you have to offer me and my family? Oh, you don't have a fourth grade ministry? We're going to find someplace else to go right? Everything is this sort of cultural, consumer-driven mentality that says, what is in this thing for me? And spiritually, we've applied those same principles to our own spiritual lives. So God, give me this. God, do this in me. God, bring this about. God, give me financial blessing. All these things we're asking for ourselves. And they're a bankrupt set of questions. And it's not that God doesn't want to honor you and bless you and do all those things. God does what God will do but according to his will and what's pleasing to him. The goal of the Christian life is not honoring yourself. The goal of the Christian life is not building a legacy life that you're proud of. The goal of the Christian life is to completely and totally die to yourself so that you can be equipped for doing God's will and things that are pleasing to him. And he will work in you. Right? That same metaphor. He's not going to dump a load of materials and hammers in a toolbox and supplies and say, I want you to build a house. Now knock it out. I'll be back in a month. He says, Here's the equipping tools. I've called you to build a house, and I'm going to work in you and with you. And we're going to build the house. And it's going to be hard. You're not going to like it at times. At times you're going to love it. At times you're going to hate it. But when you're done, I'm going to get all the glory, and people are going to come to know me because of your faithfulness. And that becomes the heartbeat of the Christian life, right? That God is going to equip us to do his will. And he's going to work in us to bring about what's pleasing to him. And for the person that's sitting out there, maybe you're not a believer, you're saying, well, that sounds crummy. But to the believer, this is glorious stuff. Like, I don't want, (laughs) the things that I choose for myself are disastrous. They just are. I mean, you can look at what I have left behind in 39 years of life, right? Plus or minus a few others. I left a wake of garbage, man. I make terrible choices and I pick terrible things and I think I need this and I don't need it and it's gone in a week and I choose things that I think are going to be great and they're not. When I'm left to my own desires, I choose destruction. Even in my best well-intentioned ways, it's typically always about me. The whole goal of the Christian life is he must increase, as John says, I must decrease, John 3.30. John the Baptist, right, out in the wilderness, sees Jesus and says, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the heartbeat of following Jesus, right? So we're called to believe those things, right? To believe in the power and in the peace and in the providence of God and this idea that he is the good shepherd and he will equip us to do his will and he will work in us to what is pleasing to him. And then he has that little final piece and he says, and I want you to bear. And when he uses the word bear, he's really saying, I want you to kind of carry the weight of and be patient with. So when you bear something, you're carrying the weight of it, and you're being patient with it. And this is what he says in verse 21. uh, 21. Well, we'll move down to 22. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. So brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. The idea of bearing is this idea of carrying the weight of Um, of wrestling with, of being patient with. I want you to bear with my word, right, this sermon of exhortation because I've written you a short letter. And remember, this is a a sermon that was preached but most likely was transcribed and then taken out to all these small house and cell churches and read like a letter to friends. And so he kind of signs this thing off by saying, I want you to bear with this. In other words, I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to carry the weight of it. In other words, it's not a sermon we listen to once and we go, man, man, Dude is good. He's good. I didn't fall asleep once. Like that dude knocked it out. You hear the funny story about his wife in the middle? It's so good, right? Like that's how we typically look at sermons. But he's saying, "I want you to bear the weight of this exhortation." Now think about what we've done. If you were to listen to me read the book one verse or chapter one through chapter thirteen, we'd be in for an hour. But we have done thirty-nine weeks, and if you've made every one of those, and I know who has and who hasn't, right? We actually have got this system in the back with gold stars, and the Lord asks, and we send it to him, and he checks off. And, you know, it's kind of like Sunday school when you were growing up, those gold stars. You get a, you know, a snow cone or whatever. But here's the deal if you made every one of the 39 uh, sermons that we preached on Hebrews, you would have sat in here listening to us exegete and talk about and pontificate for 26 hours. 26 hours. You have spent listening to us break this down. And you know what? How many times did I tell you we are only scratching the surface? We can only touch this little piece. Like this thing and Scripture as a whole was meant to be bore. It was meant to be wrestled with. It was meant to be contemplated. It was meant to be chewed over. It was not something we walk in, we get a slap on the back on a Sunday, and we go back out and we go, I can make it the rest of the week. That's why we hold Scripture in such high authority around here. That's why we teach to it verse by verse, is because we want you to have an absolute love affair with it. We want you to go home and go, I don't believe what he said. I want to read it for myself. We want you to discover it and dive into it. It is God's living and active breath to us. What I say about it has little consequence, but what you do with it matters most. And so what what our author's saying is bear with this letter of exhortation because it's only short. In other words, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface on what you need to know to follow Christ. So take this letter and wrestle with it and dive into it and contemplate it and chew it up as churches, as small groups, as cells, like eat it up. This should be our heartbeat with the word of God. Like this stuff that we do on Sunday should just be an intro to what you do the rest of the week. That's why we have a Bible reading group and all those kind of things trying to get you into the word of God. I do not care what you think about me as a preacher. I just don't. I'm not good. I get it. There's a thousand better. But what I do care about is this, that you fall in love with God's word. That's it. It will change your life and it will change your family. It is the answer to all of the problems that you have. Not reading it, but reading it, understanding it, surrendering to it and letting God move in you. It will change Every struggle you have. And he says, brothers, bear with this word. If you're not bearing scripture, if you're not bearing with it, carrying the weight of it, wrestling with it, being patient with it as you navigate it, outside of Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning is designed for us to corporately come together and worship God and and hang on to some truth together. This should not be the sole place you are encountering God's word. So he says, brothers, believe and bear. And then finally to wrap this up, because I know everybody's got lunch reservations somewhere. They're pretty, old. it's COVID, you can get in anywhere, right? So no one's there. All right, so check this out. Last thing is this. (laughs) He goes on to say, um, okay, last thing he says, and he kind of ends this little wrap up. He says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. So Timothy's been in prison. Great news that Timothy's been released, right? If he arrives soon to where, where our author is, which we don't know who that is or where he is, um, I'm going to come with him to see you and greet all your leaders and all God's people from, and all those in Italy send their greetings and grace be with you all. So all these little things are not throwaways, right? And I wish I had time to really dive into the, some of these encouraging words that are actually in those last few verses. But this little wrap-up is this powerful little thing, which is as you're sitting and feeling alone, as you look around you and your parents say, you know what, you're out of the family if you're gonna follow Christ or the culture shuts the door on you or you lose your job or you're no longer call, allowed to be called Jewish any longer because you have given up on God's old ways and you've adopted this idea of Jesus as Lord and Savior and you're feeling very much alone, he says, listen, I want you to remind you, I want to remind you, you are not alone in your struggles and in your battles and in your fights. He says, I want you to know that even our brother Timothy, who has been in jail for this stuff, He's been released, which would have been a great moment of celebration for the church, right? They knew, they knew Timothy. Timothy had gone through Paul and these missionary journeys. They had heard of him at least, if not met him. And he'd been released from jail. They had been praying for Timothy. And to hear that Timothy had been freed, that God had been victorious. Like these are encouraging, beautiful, wonderful things. And he says, not only that Timothy been released, but when he comes to me, we're coming to you. Now, again, this carries no weight for us because we don't visit each other anymore. Like, we just don't. If you, if you grew up in the 80s, like we talked about this before, you grew up in the 80s, you visited your neighbors. Hey, we were in the neighborhood, so we swung by, right? We don't go over to each other's houses anymore. That's weird, right? When your doorbell rings, what do you initially think? Uh, I didn't. Did you invite me? Did somebody come over? I didn't go over to I don't want to answer it. Just lay here. Just lay here. Lay here. When I was a kid, man, we shot up raid right the door. Mom had some kind of Folgers crystals in there or whatever for company, only company coffee or whatever that was. And, I mean, we just don't do that anymore. But hospitality is this huge deal. And he's saying, listen, we are coming to you. Letters and sermons that we're going to come visit you in your little, small community, whatever that is. We're coming. Which has been totally encouraging, right? So he says, we're coming to you. He says, greet all your leaders, like all those church leaders, right, and all the people of God. Like, greet them. Tell them we love them. And you know what? Those from Italy send their greetings. Now, I don't know what that means or why that's important, but those in Rome, right, those believers in Rome, maybe they had a special relationship with these Hebrew Christians, I don't know, but man, they send their greetings. In other words, the author says, I've talked to them too. In other words, in this sort of connectivity thing, you are a part of a much bigger picture. Those in Italy... Timothy's in jail. Like, I love you. Like, we are all in this thing together. And as believers, that truly is the picture of what the family of God is. Like, I don't care where you've grown up or where you've gone or what your background is. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as God's son, as a Lord and Savior? And is he your only hope? You're my brother. You're my sister. I told you this story. and I've told it before a bunch of times. But we were in China in 2013 or whatever. We're getting on the subway. And I'll end with all this. I promise. End with all this. And I'm pressing into the subway, and I'm a monster in China, by the way. I'm huge. I'm a giant human. And so, in fact, we were teaching English one week in this thing, and one lady asked me, she goes, excuse me, are you a giant from your country? That was the phrase. And I said, I'm offended. Um, uh, no, I am not, but I am larger. I get it. But she's basically, I was towering. So when I go into the subway, it would be my giant white redhead over everything. And so... We were we stuck out like sore thumbs, so we're pressing in the subway. I mean hundreds and thousands of people right pressing in. And this guy locks eyes with me. Because we're different, man. We look different. Everybody's wondering why we're there. And so he looks at me and, and he looks at, and he comes right up to me like chest to chest, and he says, Are you a believer? And we were trained really carefully to make sure we were really cautious about what we said because we had missionaries in the underground church that we were serving. And so because the church is still persecuted in China and people we know are still literally being put in jail and killed for their faith, we were told to be very careful, but also to never deny your faith, right? So I had this moment of panic where I'm like, well, is he going to arrest me? I'm like, I'm bigger than him. I can get him if I had to. But I can't get all of them, right? So I was like, maybe I could. So, anyway, he goes, I, I just said yes. And he stepped into my chest and he threw his arms around me and just said, brother. And I was only in, and he just was kind of broken English. Are you a believer, brother? And he just hugged me. I mean, like way too long kind of a hug, you know, <laughs> where you're going, all right, uh, okay, it's getting weird now. But he didn't ask me if I was a Baptist. He didn't ask me how big our church was or where I went or if I was a pastor or what happened down here. Would we believe in dancing or whatever? Like, do we, you know, do, do we do communion this way or that way? Or do we sprinkle? or do we? He didn't ask any of those questions. He just said, are you a believer? And this is basically what, what he, he's going, those in Italy, Timothy, like we're all here for you. Whatever you're facing, we're in it together. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then he says, grace be to you all. That's it, that's all we've got, grace. Be graceful to each other, right? If there's anything I give this word in this entire pandemic season, is just be graceful, right? Be full of grace. Get off your box, love people well, and be full of grace. And this is how our author ends all of that. Believe, believe in the power and the peace and the providence of God, the great shepherd. He will equip you to do his will Right? He will work in you to bring about what's pleasing to him and wrestle with this stuff. Carry the weight of it, contemplate it, fight with it. Get the word in your heart. And remember, you're not alone. Whatever you're walking through, you're not alone. There are believers all over this place, in this room, all over the world, in the city that are walking the same path that you are on. Love them and be full of grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate this morning, the dedication of our children, to open your word, to pray, to preach, to do all these kind of beautiful things that we get to do in Christ. Uh, it is an absolute and undeniable privilege. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. As we close our time in worship, Lord, I pray that you would press these things on our heart, that we might know you and that you might get all the glory. For, Lord, you are the King of kings. You are the one who raised Jesus from the dead. You are full of peace and full of power and your providence is at work. And so Lord, we trust you and we glorify you. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
1: What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more forever now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I owe. say.
0: Amen. Well, if you are here for the first time, I pray and hope that you are encouraged, encouraged seeing your family and your grandkids or your kids up here loving and dedicating and raising their children, that you are encouraged that people were kind to you, that you heard the word of God, that somehow it moved in you. But our hope and our call truthfully is that we believe these things about God, that he is a God of peace and a God of power and a God of providence, that he is the great shepherd, that Jesus is the great shepherd, the leader of of sheep, that he will equip us and he will work in us, not to do what we want, not for our desires, but for his, for his glory, and that he'll work in us for his purposes. And all of that, fall in love with scripture. Wrestle with it. Do life with it. And remember, you're not alone. We're all in this together. Grace be with you all. Go in peace.